We're in Genesis. If you want to turn to the first book of the Bible on the first page, and we're looking at the first two verses. I started with five and then dropped to two. Um, I think I'm taking double the amount of time to write Old Testament sermons than, than the New Testament. It's, it's quite hard. But let's, uh, let's look at God's word. This is his inspired word. It is uh, timeless and always on time. So let's read it. Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without void. And darkness was over the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let's take a moment of meditation and then I'll pray for us. Father, right now, we come into your presence in prayer. And Lord, would we not ever take prayer for granted? As we just read these magnificent words, these couple of verses, Lord, we come into the presence of the all-sufficient God. What an incredible, incredible gift it is to be able to speak with you, commune with you, to know you, Lord. Would we tremble at your word and tremble at these words that in the beginning you, Lord, you were there and you had always been there. Father, would you bring your spirit upon us this morning as we contemplate things that are outside of our capacity to understand? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us knowledge? Would we come to know more of you, Lord, as our Father, Creator, Saviour. With these com complex realities of a self-existing, eternal, divine being who is three in one, help, help us, Lord, I pray. Help me as I teach. Give me wisdom. For I do not have wisdom of my own. I give you glory, Jesus. Amen. I thought it would be helpful to start by thinking about what the aim of preaching and teaching is. I think Colossians 1, 28 to 29 gives us a, a great understanding of what Paul thought preaching and teaching was. And he says, him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The aim of preaching and teaching for Paul was that we would present everyone mature in Christ. 
everyone, not just pastors and leaders, not just those who go into vocational ministry, but everyone. Everyone in the church would become mature in Christ. But we need to understand what maturity in Christ is. And of course, for many of us, we can think of people in our life that we would go, oh, they were spiritually mature people. And maybe that's dependent on how they prayed or the Bible passages that they knew. But it's not necessarily all about those things. Because spiritually mature people, I think, in the Scripture are those who can practically live out the position that Christ claimed for them in all circumstances. So in the midst of suffering and trial, the person who is spiritually mature, maturing Christ, knows that they are a child of God and they're not pushed to and fro all the time. They're not moved by false teaching. They're not going through faith crisis every month or so. They've got a stability about them, a firmness in the word and who they are in God and Christ. They have a knowledge about God and they trust him and have faith, a certain faith in him. A spiritually mature person is one who is disciplined in studying God. Disciplined in studying God. These are the things we see highlighted throughout scripture. So the reason I start here, the reason I'm starting with an introduction from the New Testament, not the old, is because We want to see a church of mature people in Christ, everyone mature. And what that means is some sermons don't have a clear practical application. Now, there's a great problem with pushing an application onto Scripture because not all of the passages need a practical application where we walk out and know exactly what we need to do. Some of it is about knowledge. Some of Scripture is about teaching us doctrine of God, which is sets of belief, what we believe about God, teaching us theology, which is the study of God. A lot of Scripture actually has very little to do with how we practically go from here, but what do we know about God, what we actually take on board and understand. And much of Genesis, although there will be application in there, is really about what you need to know. You need to know who God is. You need to know what he has done in in his creation. You need to know how he has provided for us. And the danger we have in pushing application is that when someone I've heard teach on Genesis 1, they teach about this creative God and then they take it away from God and make it all about us and they say, now you go from here and be creative like your God. That is not what Genesis 1 is teaching at all. Not even close to what Genesis 1 is teaching. You can't infuse an application into Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is about God. And it mentions God's name 35 times. And it mentions your name never. At all. It's not about us. It's not about how we fit in. It's always about God. And that is how we see Genesis unfold, but it's particularly how we see Genesis 1 play out. So when we come to this passage, the application, know God. There's your application. Worship God. Glorify God. But ultimately, come to study him and understand him as much as you can so that you know who you are. Because in order to know who you are, you need to know your creator. And he is the God of all creation. 
So I hope that helps as we start to unpack Genesis, that Genesis is all about God. And if you want to listen to the overview message, we did that last week. It's online. Have a listen and you'll see very clearly that the whole of Genesis is about God. So there'll be sometimes some messages that the application isn't exactly clear. The practical outworking, what do I do? What do I not do? That's not going to be so clear in Genesis because it's about knowing and understanding God and your identity. I want to start with a quote before we get into the first few words of this passage. Clyde Kilbley, I don't even know who he is really. He's a professor at a uh, Bible college in the States, and, and it's a fascinating quote. And I want to start here as it says, one of the greatest tragedies of the fall is that we get tired of familiar glories. One of the greatest tragedies that we have from sin entering into the world is we get bored of things. And I think this is ever present in a technological age where we are entertained by things on screens constantly. We cannot sit in the familiarity of the sun or the rain or the green trees or the gardens. We get bored of them. So when we come to a passage like Genesis 1 and we read about creation, we are so bored. We need pictures. We need videos. We need something to entertain us, to keep our minds focused. And that is an effect of the fall. Because in heaven, we're not going to get bored of God. But sadly, in this life, we get bored of God. We read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth like it's nothing. We read that like it's nothing. What? This should be read with absolute passion. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just sit there all day thinking about what happened in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. That is profoundly amazing. There's not enough words to describe it yet we get bored and we get bored with God's word and we get bored with God's creation. Our prayer every day, every day should be God, let me, let me be satisfied in you. Give me a fresh understanding of your word, a, a fresh spirit of, of wanting to just understand more of you. Lord, let me, think more about creation and try and understand more about what's going on around me. Would we not become bored when we read familiar passages in Scripture? Would we not become bored when we read over and over again in the beginning, God? Because this is a, that is an, a profound statement. And the majority of this message is spent on one verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is that much to teach from there that we could spend all eternity, if you want, teaching on who God is if we had enough words to say. I certainly don't because I don't have a very large vocabulary. That's why I yell. Gets the emphasis across a bit more than different words. In the beginning, God is our first phrase. In the beginning is the name of the book. I don't know the Hebrew word. I couldn't pr pronounce it. Like I said, I've got a small vo vocabulary. I have an even smaller Hebrew vocabulary. 
And we see in the beginning is the phrase that Genesis is. It's not just beginning, but it was the, the, much like a hymn. A hymn has the first few words as the title of the song, How Great They Are. How Great Thou Art is the first few lines of the song. We see that in many hymns. So it is with Genesis. In the beginning is the title of the book. In the beginning, God. It is helpful to understand that no intellect, no PhD, no degree, doesn't actually matter how smart you are. Genesis 1 is not about intellect. Genesis 1 is not a scientific document that you can try and unpack with great knowledge of study. Genesis 1, 1 and 2 uh, is the premise for all biblical faith. It is about faith and trust in God. And this is where it begins, within the beginning God. We are called to focus on not ourselves but on God. We are called not to focus on what we see but what is unseen, what is outside of us. We are called outside of human physicalities and the mind that we have to focus on a supernatural, super powerful, limited, limitless God. So your intellectual ability, your intelligence will not help you in studying Genesis 1, but in many ways could be a hindrance. And for many great, great physicists or Or studies of the universe struggle to comprehend Genesis 1 and have come up with ulterior methods of creation that fit better in their intellect. But we want to be people of faith and not people of study, studying the world, not people of intellect. And people of faith, as Hebrews helps us to understand is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That means that we don't have a blind faith or a foolish faith, but we have a certain faith. So when I read or you read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's not a foolish blind faith, it's a certainty a conviction that is based on something. What's it based on? It's based on the fact that this could not be an accident. It's based on the world that spins so specifically that it could not be an accident. It's based on the fact that we have a book inspired by God, promised to be protected, and, is, and shows his faithfulness throughout all generations. It shows very clearly his faithfulness throughout all generation. So when we say, I've got faith, I've got faith, I trust, but we've also got evidence for our faith. And the evidence for our faith, although we didn't see the world created, although we haven't seen God, there is enough evidence there to floor anyone. There is enough evidence in his word that he has protected and provided for us. There is enough evidence in creation alone which we see very clearly in Romans 1 when Paul says they are without excuse because of what is created. 
These first few words state so much about God. They state a grand doctrine, a great doctrine of God, that he is self-sufficient and self-existent. As we think about just this phrase, in the beginning, comma, God, it's stating that in the beginning there was God and only God. God is eternal. God is self-sufficient. God is self-existing. These phrases are quite mind-boggling because we ask questions like, well, what was God doing beforehand? How did he spend his time? Well, there was no time. Later on, next week, we'll see that God created time. So God wasn't inside of time. He wasn't thinking day after day what he would do. There was just God. Yet us as created beings go, I don't get it. I can't grasp it because we are created in time. These mysteries should be there to ponder and lead us to a place of worship. Worship, surrender, a, a, a humble fear of God. When we think about a God who was there in the beginnings, when we think about a God who has always existed, when we think about a God who is all-powerful, these truths, this phrase in the beginning, God, should lead us to fear. If he was there in the beginning, before anything else was, shouldn't that make us tremble? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 90. The same inspired writer, Moses, wrote Psalm 90 and he wrote Genesis 1. And in Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2, he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had made the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It is clear from the scriptures, whether it's this passage or as you study all of them, that God is eternal. He must be or he's not God. If God is not eternal and he is created, he must be or he's not God. Now, for many of the Israelites, they've just come out of Egypt and Egypt has many gods and their gods were created through divine sex often, crude, uh, ancient stories of this horrible, horrific creation story of, of, of uh, divine sex. And we see Moses in his writing, of course, God's word uh, coming to Moses. We see Moses penning down about this all-sufficient one God who is self-existent and has no need for anyone else but himself. He's correcting almost the temptation, not that the Israelites were going down this path, but they do go down the path of following many gods at times. He's correcting and pointing them to a holy, separate God and our human opinions and our human depravity is not influenced upon God like the ancients did. They took human sin and they fused that into the ancient, to the, to the divine story. They pushed it into what it meant to be God. Of course, our God is holy and set apart and is nothing like us. And he has no sin in him and had no need for a creator, for he himself is the creator of all. 
Now it says, sorry, I've lost my place. In the beginning, God, it says, we need to understand who this God is. We need to understand who this God is. And uh, Psalm 14.1 tells us that from the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in their heart, there is no God. So those who have great intellect, who have studied the universe and the, uni- the, and the, the creation of the world and come up with other theories, they say in their heart, there's no God. Well, the Bible says they're a fool. Just because creation is spinning, just because there's life on earth, there has to be a life outside of earth. And his name is God. And we are introduced to him. And we have to spend a bit of time just on this one word, God. We have to unpack him. We have to know a bit more about him. So as we study God, we come to this word in the Hebrew. I do know this one. It's Elohim. Elohim. It's a word that has a plural around it, which could mean and push us towards the idea of the Trinity. Now, when we think of the Trinity, the Bible, the scriptures don't talk in the term Trinity. You will never find the word Trinity in the scriptures. You can look as hard as you like. But what we do see in the scriptures, we see that the scriptures teach us that this one name, God, can only be fully unfolded in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we give the word, we've helped us understand it, and we give the word Trinity to understand what it means by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as we unpack the scriptures, as you go through page after page, you will see and realize that God is not just one. Sorry, God is not just sufficient on its own. So we are teaching there's Father, there's Son, and there's Holy Spirit. The best way to show this is to turn to John 1, 1 to 3. The reason we turn to John 1, 1 to 3 is John is deliberate in the way he writes, and of course, inspired by God. So the same author that wrote Genesis is writing John. And it starts... In a very similar fashion, in the beginning was the Word. So we've got in the beginning in Genesis 1, in the beginning God, and in John 1 1, sorry, John 1, yeah, John 1 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So we've got two options here. We've either got two gods, God who was in the beginning and God who is the word, or we've got this complex God who is both father and son and spirit. Because we see all the way through the scriptures the different things, the different aspects of God are attributed to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Creation is attributed to the Father and the Son. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right here we see that in the beginning was the Word, the Word being Jesus. It's capitalized if you have that in your Bible. He was with God and he was God. 
He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. God, Father and Son, both created the, the universe. It states it here very clearly. So we have one, we have this focus throughout scripture on different persons of the Godhead. We said this last week, but as we unpack the scriptures, we start to see that different uh, parts of the scripture is focusing on this divine being God, but focusing on the different persons. In Genesis, we see the focus on the father and his work, yet the, the son and the spirit are present. In the gospels, we see the focus on the son, yet the father and the spirit is present. In Acts and today, we see the focus on the Holy Spirit who fills the church and, uh, and inspires us. Yet, of course, the Father and the Son are present. It is so clear throughout the whole of Scripture that God is summed up in this threefold name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no separation. There is no way to put the son on his own. Even Jesus says the father and I are one. There's no way to take the father out and say the father is greater than the son. They are all equal and they are all one. Genesis 1-2 tells us that the spirit is present in creation as he hovers over the expanse of the water. This is an important teaching on God and important for us to grasp it as much as we can because we cannot be foolish to think that we understand it completely. As you read different theological books, they write heaps of words and it seems this sort of battle between who can write the most words. But in the end, the summary is there is one God in three persons, three distinct persons. They are all equally God. That is the summary. Read as many theological, systematic theology books as you like. They will all come down to that basis, no matter how much they write on it that there is one God and three distinct persons who are all God. So this God that we're introduced to is a complex God. He's a complex God because he was self-sufficient. The reason God is not lonely in the beginning is because he has everything he needs within himself. The Father glorifies Sorry, the the Son glorifies the Father. The Spirit glorifies the Son in their relationship. There is a, a love that is within them that is like no other love. And it's through this love for themselves, for God, God's love for God, that he creates the universe. God did not create the universe for you and me. He created it for himself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So why did he create the heavens and the earth? For his glory. For his glory. That he may be known to his creation. That he may be praised by his creation. And we will start to see that as we unpack created the heavens and the earth. So we have this threefold God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who creates everything. And that is what's summed up in this phrase, heavens and the earth. It represents a totality of all things. 
heavens being the spiritual realm and the skies above the universe. A lot of the Old Testament writers speak of the heavens being up in the, the, in the sky, the, the stars and the moon and all that they see at night. And the earth being everything we have here on this globe. It represents all things. And it states that God created it all and it doesn't give us any material that he had but his word. God spoke and all things were created. It's also very helpful for us to turn to the New Testament writers to understand what the Old Testament is saying. Because the New Testament writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen down their words. And we see in Hebrews 11.3 it says, By faith... We understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let me read it again. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the Christian believes that Genesis 1 is saying that when God created the heavens and the earth, he spoke and it came into being. He had no material to fashion. He had no things to manipulate and change. He created from scratch, from nothing, with his word, and things appeared. We can't do that. You and I can't do that. We've got this term today about creatives. Do you love it? I don't. A creative is a person who's like musically gifted, really good at art, they wear funny clothes. That's a creative. A creative implies that they could create something out of nothing, but they can't. So they should be called makeups because they make things or natives. That's weird. What we see in Genesis is that, G- is that throughout the account of Genesis, God changes the language that is used. He says, create only three times and he says make far more throughout the days of creation he created the heavens and the earth he creates man in his image this is very significant in the way god creates when he creates he's creating something from scratch out of nothing he's forming something new when we are created we were created like nothing else we were created in the image of god although we were created out of dust We were created not like the animals. We're not like the trees. We're created different. We'll get that. That's another sermon in a few weeks' time. But the point is when God creates, he creates from nothing. And when we create, we're actually not creating anything. We're making stuff that's already here. Everything that human beings have created or made is from what has already existed. And we build on each other's technology, and that is where we are today. So the New Testament writers help us to understand what the Old Testament is saying by showing us that it is by the word of God that he created, not out of things that are visible, but things that are unseen. And what did he create? Everything. In Colossians, everything that is seen or visible and invisible. He created the invisible things as well. That's incredible. There's invisible things. Like, are they around us now? I don't know. But what we see as we look at creation is a world that God formed. Let's read a physicist. 
really confusing people. Stephen Hawkins, known as the greatest physicist or something like that since August, uh, August? Einstein, whatever his name is. I don't really care for this stuff that much. This is what this guy says in A Brief History of Time. I find it fascinating because he completely denies his position at the end. As he ponders the universe and thinks about what's going on in space, he uses a whole lot of numbers that are massive. A Brief History of Time says that our galaxy is an average size spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a spiral in a pastry roll and that is over a hundred thousand light years across about 600 trillion miles i didn't do the conversion he says we now know that our galaxy is one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes, each galaxy itself containing some hundred million stars, a thousand, hundred thousand million stars. Some estimate, some estimate, some estimates say that most, the most distant galaxy is eight billion light years away and racing away at 200 million miles an hour. Finally, the fact of the expanding universe de demands a beginning. Did you hear that? Finally, the fact of the expanding universe demands a beginning. And now, Stephen Hawkins, before he died, doubts that the Big Bang was the beginning. So through studying the universe, this intellectual genius who the world sort of admires and is in awe of, gets to the end of his life, looks at the universe, reads out these numbers that don't make any sense to the normal person, and he goes, oh, I think I'm wrong. That's what you got to? Your whole life was spent studying the stars and you get to, I think I'm wrong? The fool says in their heart, there is no God. The fool. The fool looks at all that is around them and looks at the trees and the birds and looks at our bodies that no one person can understand. We have to have specialists for everything. I know all about them. We go to many. And we say there's no God? That there's no intellectual designer behind this? The fool says that. The person with faith, or even just with logic, says there is a God because creation screams at us that there is a God. Psalm 19 tells us with great explicit language that there is a God because of what is created. Just flick to it for a moment. Just read the first few verses, Psalm 19. Psalm 19 gives us two ways to understand God, his creation and the word. And the first part is his creation. The heavens, the universe, the stars above declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day they pour out speech. Night to night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes up like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end, to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. Creation. The outworkings of creation, the reason, the fact that the sun rises and sets day after day is evidence that there is a God. It is screaming that there's a God. In Romans 1, Paul writes to the church of Rome in in verse uh, 120, you are without excuse. Creation means you are without excuse. Whether you hear of God preached to you or not, it doesn't matter. The world's preaching God, and if you don't believe in him, you're without excuse. And you are worthy of the punishment that is upon your head. People ask the question all the time, what about people who don't hear the gospel? They've heard it. They've had the opportunity. The creation that God has made is declaring, I exist I exist, I exist. It's screaming it. That God of all creation, he created the heavens and the earth. So the first point from Genesis 1, well not the first point, the first three things we see, the first things we see in, in this one verse is that God is self-existent. He's self-existent. He's all-powerful. He creates from nothing. And he's complex in that he is threefold and we cannot understand his complete nature. Verse 2 is somewhat strange. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the earth. So God created the heavens and the earth and now we start to go into what did it look like? How did it sort of come into being? And there's many different interpretations on it and many different people are going to have different opinions. From what we study in the scriptures, from we, as we look at the New Testament, it seems to me that the New Testament writers believed that this was how God created the, the earth. We are going to see many people disagree. But as we look at this passage, he created it without form or void and darkness was over the earth. Couldn't God have just created it all at once? Couldn't it have just blown up into this big ball of water and land was there and people were there and it all happened all at once? Could he not have? He could have. And everyone says Genesis is poetic, but couldn't God create in a poetic fashion as well? In order to declare his praise and to have glory put upon him, couldn't he create in a way that is, is poetic and beautiful, that tells a story? Yeah, I believe he could. And I believe that's what he did. In Genesis 1, I believe what we see is God creating the heavens and the earth through a picture of beauty a way of poetically describing his creation. So when he says the world, the earth was out form or void, he's telling a story. That God, yes, creates from nothing, but he also creates from chaos. 
See, what we see in Genesis 1-2 is God is giving us a picture that the earth is not finished in Genesis 1 and 2, but he is going to recreate it with his people that he claims through Christ when he conquers sin in the new creation. And he puts death under his feet. Genesis 2 points us to the fact that when we read Genesis 1, creation wasn't yet complete. It was very good, but it wasn't perfect. Can we say it was perfect when sin enters into the world? So what we see in Genesis 2, that God has this formless void of darkness and water, all just sort of doing its own thing. It's chaos. It's messy. And God's going to form that into life and beauty, just as he is going to form this now cursed world into life and beauty. Jesus makes all things new. Genesis 1 points to Revelation 22. Revelation 22 was not plan B. It was plan A that God would have a people for himself. They would be a redeemed people for himself. That means that Genesis 1, sorry, Genesis 3 was not a shock to God. We spoke about this last week briefly, but we must come to understand that the fall of man was not a shock to God, but rather his purpose. God, through his great divine plan, purposed the fall for good in order that he would have a redeemed people for himself for all eternity who would worship him and glorify him. Otherwise, he's not sovereign. We believe that God is sovereign. That is all in control completely over all things. And if he did not purpose Genesis 3, then he gave up his sovereignty to either Satan or Adam and Eve. Because how can God be sovereign and in a moment something just sends everything out of control? But rather through his divine purpose, he purposed Genesis 3 for good that he may have his people for himself in the new creation of the heavens and earth. He takes chaos and he turns it into life and he turns it into blessing and he turns it into glory for himself Isaiah 46 10 declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet seen not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose what an incredible passage As we think of Genesis 1 and we try to grasp how can Genesis 3 take place when there is a holy, good, sovereign God. It tells us, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish my purpose. God will accomplish the new heavens and the earth. He accomplished it through the saving of his people in Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And when we see in verse 2 this, this earth without form and void, we know that God can create from chaos, from mess. And this last phrase, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. An unutterable beauty hovers over the expanse of chaos. 
and unutterable beauty. The, the Spirit of God, this unutterable beauty, this thing that is beyond all imagination, all comprehension, hovers over the expanse of the waters. And the Hebrew word for spirit is breath. So we see this breath of God hovering over the expanse of the waters, hovering over the chaos that God has formed. And he is going to breathe life, give his breath to this creation and bring it about for his glory. So when we see Genesis 1 as a whole, we see God creating a world which he purposed purposed for his glory and only for his glory. And he will do whatever, it, whatever he has to do for his glory, even Genesis 3. He purposed it. He planned it in order that he may have a redeemed people for himself in the new creation of the heavens and earths. So what we finish with in Genesis 1 and 2 is this grand designer God who is all sovereign, all in control, self-existing, demanding worship, praise, honour, glory. His creation demands it. And as we read through many Old Testament passages, let me give you a few if you're writing things down. Job 38, Psalm 19 we read, Psalm 33, Psalm 36, 136, Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 45, all, all of them scream worship from creation to this good and magnificent creator. And I want to read just Job 38 to finish. Job 38, Job has gone through such suffering. He's been questioning in his heart. He's been asking all these questions. And God finally speaks at the end of the book. And he says, Who is this that darkens? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress yourself for action like a man, and I will question you, and you shall make known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On whom were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sung together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clothes like its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for, its, for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further and here you, sh- you proud ways shall stay. What a response from God to a man. What a response. Where were you when God laid the foundations of the world? when he stretched a measuring line across it. When he closed in the waves. You see, the rest of creation, the rest of creation delights to do the will of its creator. And we don't. This story isn't about you. It's about God and his glory.
and his glory extending to the ends of the earth. Will we worship him? Let's pray. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord, that would be mindful of man? As Psalm 8 says, what majesty surrounds you? What glory is within you, Lord? The Lord, you didn't even need to create in order to see, to show off your glory. You had enough glory in yourself. You yourself are more magnificent than any of creation. The beauty of the Spirit hovering above the watery chaos, Lord, let it lead us to tremble. Put us in our right place, Lord. Humble mankind. Humble us that we may fear you. Fear you that responds in repentance and belief and worship all the days of our lives. You're so worthy of praise. Creation delights in you and delights to do your will. Lord, would we give us your grace and your spirit in order that we can. All glory and honour be to you. In Jesus' name, amen.